And at this time, open in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand, make eye contact with our usher, and he will um, get a Bible to you. No takers on the Bibles, that's always a good thing. Well-equipped church. They say that a Bible that is worn out is usually owned by someone who's not. <laughs> it's truth in that. So, the book of Joshua. Tonight we're in chapter 20. The book of Joshua is about God bringing his covenant people into the promised land and life that he had sworn to them through Abraham several hundred years before the days that these events took place. And what we've discovered as we've moved through the book thus far is that the same God who brought them into their land and caused them to inherit the richness of his purpose and plan for their lives, that the same God who did that is willing and wanting to do that for his people even in this day, to bring us into the full and abundant life that he's promised to us and that he's laid before us in scripture and purchased for us through the blood of his son. Now, as we come to chapter 20 tonight, we really turn a corner in our study of the book of Joshua. Thus far, it has been really all about Israel and their possession of and conquest of and the division of the land of Canaan that God uh, was giving to them. In fact, the last sentence of chapter 19, where we finished uh, last week, the last sentence says, so they made an end of dividing the country. And with that sentence, it indicates the completion of their conquest and of the division of the land that was then allotted to those 12 tribes. And much, if not all of that scripture that we've looked at thus far is all about really what God has done for them and bringing them in and dividing the land to them. But tonight in chapters 20 and 21, these chapters highlight for us two aspects of Israel's existence in the land that are very important to God. These are two things tonight that God is going to ask them to do that are of the utmost importance to him. The first that we get in chapter 20 is the establishing of the cities of refuge. And then in chapter 21, which we might or might not get to tonight, we'll see how it goes is the donation of the cities for the priests or for the Levites who did not receive a chunk of land. Uh, they were to receive cities uh, intermingled with the rest of the tribes. And so in these two chapters, we catch what God wants them now to do. Two things that God asks of them now that he has given them the land. But we begin here in chapter 20. Now, life is a lot like a game of chess isn't it? There's a little bit of strategy, a little bit of maneuvering involved. There's a little bit of offense and a little bit of defense. There's rank and priority involved. There's opportunities and limitations that we're bound by, you know. If you do it right, a queen can be taken by a little bitty pawn or a pawn can become a queen if you do it right. And you can take all of those things, and that's probably why chess is what it is and has lasted as long as it has, because it really is so much like life. But I think I wish, personally, that there was one way that life was just a little bit more like the game of chess. And here's the for instance. Here's in what way. Is that one simple rule that a decision didn't become official until you took your hand off the piece. <laughs> that, that you could make a move, that you could kind of make a decision and do something, but it didn't really become official yet. You could kind of make the move and then see how the playing field looks like and then make up your mind if you really want to make the move or not. And I wish life was, was a lot more like that. You know, you, you're going to make an investment, 
And so, oh, I'm going to make the investment. And I make it, but I'm just going to, for a little while, now that I've done it, I'm going to observe the playing field for a little while and make sure it's the right thing before I take my hand off the piece. Ah, I don't like that move. I don't think that leaves me vulnerable in certain ways. And so I'm going to undo it. Or, or should I take that promotion, that job offer that's going to pay a lot more money, but it's also going to tax a lot more of my time and the quality of my life is going to be compromised by it. And so I'm going to do it, but I'm going to keep my hand on the piece and see if I like it for a while. And, and then, and no, I don't like it. I'll just take my hand off the, and, and move it back. I don't want to do that. Or perhaps you think that the best move for me in this position is to end my marriage. And so I'm just going to serve the papers And then I'm going to observe the playing field for a while. I haven't taken my hand off the piece yet. I haven't really decided. I made the move, but I don't know if I'm going to go through with it ultimately. And so you make the move, and then you say, oh, man, if I move here, that lawyer is going to get my castle. And ultimately, I'm going to lose my queen if I do this. This is a bad move. And so you you wish you could just take your hand off of the piece at that point. You know, it would be nice if life was like that a little bit, wasn't it? That you could just make a move. Oh, that was a bad move. And then change your mind and, and undo it. A bad move. You know, that would be nice if we could do that in life, wouldn't it? But what about, and again, going back to chess. What about when the bad move that you make unintentionally ends the game you ever done that you know the 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 one where you never saw it coming you had the upper hand everything was going according to plan and you made a move that you thought was going to be a safe move a good move and you made the move and it turned the tables completely you know that the landscape of that playing field is never going to turn back in your favor again. And inside, you know that ultimately your kingdom is about to crumble because of the thing that you just did. Now, it's one thing when it's a game of chess and the stakes are relatively low, you just get bragging rights. But it's another thing when something like that happens in real life. When the bad move that we make that unintentionally changes things forever doesn't just cause a little bit of discomfort, but it radically changes either someone else's world or it changes our world forever. Like that pet store owner that you read about this week, perhaps in the news, that didn't secure the cage properly of its African python and it escaped into the living quarters of the house and strangled two children ages four and six years old. A a bad move, an unintentional mistake that changed life forever on every side of that. Or like the bus driver in Long Island City who swerved out of the way, a a snap judgment to miss a pedestrian, but in the process struck a six-year-old, killing him. And, And when you see something like that happen... You say, oh, if only I could take my hand off the piece. If only I could replay the last hour of my life or the last minute of my life or the last year of my life. Maybe it's for you and maybe the consequence isn't death. Maybe you find yourself sitting on a house of cards yourself and you look at it and you realize because of the decisions that I've made, Because of reaping what I've sown, I'm watching this kingdom begin to crumble underneath my feet. And I know that the outcome of the circumstances I'm in presently isn't going to turn out for me. And sometimes we cry out, even as the people of God, and we say, isn't there a mercy rule? Isn't there a mercy rule in life? Somehow that we can just take our, no, my hand was on the piece. I I didn't really want to do that. I I didn't mean to make that decision. Can can I take it back? Is there any way that I can undo this? As we come to this chapter tonight here uh, in Joshua, Joshua chapter 20, we come to something that doesn't seem like it's a very big deal to us. And as we read it in Joshua, it's only nine verses, and it seems like a very small thing. What we discover is that it's something that's very serious and very important to God. It's the establishing of cities of refuge. In fact, this is the fourth time since the end of Moses' life, which isn't that long ago, this is the fourth time that God has told them, I want you to establish these cities. What does it say? Notice with me, chapter 20, verse 1. It says, The Lord also spoke to Joshua, 
saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is the high priest in those days. And then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he has fled. Now in those days, and even to this day in some cultures, Middle Eastern cultures, Honor killing is, a, is an important part of the way that they deal with one another. That is, if someone is killed in my family by you, whether it be on purpose or whether it be accidental, then the honor killing rule is that it's my responsibility to uphold the honor of my family to avenge the death of my slain family member, and that would be by coming after you or coming after members of your family if I can't get to you, but to somehow satisfy the blood loss that I endured by taking it out upon the responsible party or the family of the responsible party. Now, sometimes in those days, they looked at that as the very will of God, that that's what God wanted them to do. And and here's why. Because from God's perspective... The very foundation of human government. Human government wasn't established until after the flood in Noah's day. And the rule, the basis for human government was capital punishment. The scripture is Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. It says this, and this is God speaking to Noah of how to establish things after the flood. He says, surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And so, capital punishment, that life for life, that if you take someone's life, the penalty for that is that your life will, in turn, be taken. And so, the practice of honor killing was prevalent, but it was also believed by them to be a command, something that God had called them, told them, ordered them to do to satisfy the blood of the lost. However, what God wants to be very clear about, and especially in the establishing of these cities of refuge, is that if it is not murder one, in other words, it's a manslaughter, it's an accidental death, It wasn't intended. It's the consequence of a bad decision, bad choices. That in that case, death is not to be administered to the guilty party, but there is to be a means of obtaining mercy. And it's very important to God that they they have that place where they can go to uh, for that. And so it's important. Now, why is this so important to God that there be a mercy rule in these instances? Why would God four times tell them this? Because when you read Deuteronomy and look at what God commanded them concerning their life in the land, there were many other things that we would deem as more important that he didn't say four times. So why so important to God this establishing of cities of refuge? Here's why. Because mercy is one of the leading characteristics of who God is. When Moses was called and commissioned by God and then served him for a little while. There was one encounter where Moses met with the Lord and Moses said, Lord, who are you? I want to know you. And the Lord said, you can't know me. You can't see me. If you were to see me, you would die. He said, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to tuck you into the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by. And you can see my afterglow. 
You can see the, 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 you know, the tailwinds from my passing by, and, and, and I'll declare my name to you there. I will tell you who I am. And so it's Exodus chapter 34. Moses goes up onto the mountain. It's Exodus 34, verse 5. And it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity upon the fathers or of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And then it says, So Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And I think that's what I would have done too. But the overarching principle or character that God described himself as to Moses was that of mercy. The Lord, merciful and gracious, keeping mercy unto thousands. Mercy is an attribute of who God is. When the prophet Micah was summarizing to the people what was required of them, giving, if you would, cliff notes for the law. What is it that the Lord, what is it, O man, that is good and what the Lord requires of you? Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And he gave three things. He said that you're to do What is it? Did I write it down? I didn't. Yes, I did. But he says, what did the Lord require of you? He says, to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, God never commands something of his people that he himself is not. And if he commands us to be merciful, it is because he himself is mercy. And the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment of God, according to James chapter 2, verse 13. It says that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so mercy is a leading characteristic of who God is, and thus mercy is important to God. But you say, okay, I understand that. I get that from a lot of scriptures. But why is this illustration of mercy so important to God? Why is it that he would establish a place where the people would have to flee to in order to obtain this mercy? If God is merciful then why not just establish it that if it is manslaughter, then there shouldn't be death and set up protections within the city? Why does there have to be a special place set apart for these people to flee to if this type of thing were to happen? Why is that? Two reasons. If you're taking notes, you can write them down. Number one is because by doing it this way, it would impart imperfectly, but nevertheless, it would reveal the motivation behind the action. In other words, if it really was murder one, I'm not just murdering you with my hand, but I'm murdering you with my heart. There's hatred, there's intent, there's guile and desire to see you fall, and I kill you. Then I'm not going to change and uproot my whole life just so that I can clear my name or protect myself because of the crime. I'll cover it up, I'll make up a story, I'll do something else, but Hey, if it's murder one, if that, if that one was in my heart, I'm not changing my whole life for you. I'm killing you because you wrecked mine, you know. And so for me to go to the city of refuge in and of itself declares something about the character and nature of the crime, that it was unintentional. I didn't mean to. I'm more hurt about this than maybe even the people that suffered the loss because I, I got to live with this for the rest of my life that it was my python that strangled those kids, or it was my snap decision to swerve out of the way of the pedestrian that killed a child on the sidewalk. I have to live with this. I have to carry this. And therefore, for the sake of obtaining mercy, Lord, I'm willing to flee. I'm willing to uproot my life and go to this place. And so, you know, there was there. Now, there were six of these cities of refuge, and God wanted them strategically placed so that no matter where you lived in Israel, you could get within a day's journey into one of these cities. It was the job of the priests specified by the law that they were to keep the roads to these cities clear at all times, meaning that God wanted people to have access to these cities should they need them and, and should they want them in a hurry. The second reason why God did it this way, that he establishes cities of refuge, and this is probably the greater reason, in fact it is, 
is that these cities represent or are a type or a picture, a shadow of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, he said this to the Pharisees. It was an indictment. He said, you search the scriptures. And they did. They had Bible studies all the time. They were always boasting of their knowledge of the scriptures. He said, you search the scriptures. And in them, you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. You recall after Jesus rose from the dead and he walked incognito, in disguise, with two disciples. They didn't know they were walking side by side with Jesus himself. And they were discouraged because he had gone to the cross and they didn't know what was going to happen now that he was gone. And Jesus said to them, he said, why is it that you walk along here and you're sad? Why the long face, essentially, is what Jesus asks them. And they said, don't you know what happened in Jerusalem in these days? We had hoped that this Jesus, that was to be the Christ, that he would establish the kingdom of God, but he was crucified and our hopes are dashed. And Jesus said, how could you be so foolish and ignorant of all that the prophets have spoken? And then it says this, Luke 24. It says that he began to expound to them, starting with Moses and then through the Psalms and then in the prophets, all of the things concerning himself that are written that christ should come that he would suffer and that he would rise again an eight mile walk probably took them a good seven eight hours jesus expounded scripture to them from genesis all the way through malachi old testament revelation of himself and their testimony those men was our hearts did burn within us as he did expound to us the things concerning himself in the word. Listen, church, every scripture in the Old Testament points to, testifies of, reveals Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is a revelation of who God is in the person of Jesus Christ. And These cities of refuge are a perfect picture of the mercy of God that's given to his people through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, how does that work? How are these cities a picture of Christ? There are some things in the Bible that God holds all men responsible for, even though they've only been, maybe, the crime only committed by one or a few, but God holds all responsible. One of those is original sin. Romans chapter 5, other scriptures, very clear that Adam, who made a decision in the Garden of Eden, He chose to disobey God and to take fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said, in the day that you eat from that tree, disobeying me, that that day you shall surely die. And Adam took of the fruit of that tree, and he disobeyed God, and he knew immediately that he was naked. Something changed inside of him. Something happened. A a condition fell upon him, a disease, if you would. He was injected with something that previously had not been a part of him. It was the condition of sin. He became a sinner that day. The Bible is clear that when Adam made that decision, he made that decision as the collective representative for all men. That you somehow mystically, yet truthfully, factually, you were in Adam making that decision yourself. And thus, death and sin passed upon you because you are a descendant of Adam. If, you know, I have a disease and I have a child, then that child is born with that disease because of what's in me. And thus, God holds all men responsible for the decision that Adam made. You say, well, wait a minute, that's not fair. I didn't choose to eat from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. And if I had been there, maybe I wouldn't have. Really? (laughs) do you think so the bible is clear that adam was man the representation of all of us and the reason why we sin is because we are sinners and the reason we're sinners is because we inherited a sin nature from adam the father of us all and thus every one of us is guilty of sin the other thing that god holds all men responsible for even though it was only committed by a few is the crucifixion of Christ. You say, now wait a minute, even if maybe I would agree with you concerning Adam and the fall, I know I'm a sinner, but I didn't crucify Christ. 
I wasn't even alive. That was almost 2,000 years ago. And on the other side of the world, I had nothing to do with that. How can God hold me responsible for the crucifixion of Christ? Here's why and here's how. Not because you held the hammer or pressed the thorns into his head. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. That's right. Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the reason for death is sin. Good, you're with me. Sin causes death. Now, if there is no sin, then there should be no death, right? Because death is the byproduct of sin. What do we know about Jesus? He was sinless. The Bible says that he was tempted in all points like we are. Every temptation that we face, he faced. Yet, the Bible says, without sin. He overcame in every area. He never sinned. He truly was without sin. He had none, none at all. Yet, what happened to him? He died. See, when Jesus hung on the cross, what he was doing is that he was absorbing the penalty and the punishment for all sin. Every sin that's ever been committed was being poured out upon him. The wrath of God was being poured out upon Jesus Christ on the cross because he who knew no sin became sin for us. And that's what was taking place on the cross is that all of the sin of humanity was being placed upon Christ. Thus, he was being crucified, crushed on a cross. And what does that mean? It means this, that if you are guilty of sin then therefore you are guilty of crucifying Christ. Because it was your sin that was nailing him there to the tree, to the cross. That's why John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says that he, Jesus, is the propitiation. That means the substitution for our sin. And not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Do you understand? is that he was dying for all sin. And therefore, if you are a sinner, if you have ever committed a sin, then you are guilty of crucifying Christ because your sin was placed upon him on the cross. So you are guilty. You're guilty of original sin. You're guilty in God's eyes of crucifying Christ. But guess what? There's good news. Jesus said something while he was on the cross. He said seven things, but one of those seven things was this. He said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Did you hear that? Manslaughter. It's not murder one. They didn't know they were doing it. They don't understand. They're they're without the proper knowledge of what's going on here. It's manslaughter. They don't know what they're doing. And because he, Jesus himself, reduced the charge to manslaughter, then that qualifies you and I a place of refuge. There's a place where we can run to, to obtain mercy for the crimes that we are guilty of, though we didn't intend to be guilty of them. The ironic and beautiful thing is that the place of refuge is in the very person whom the crime was committed against. That Jesus becomes the refuge for the sin that you and I committed. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, or chapter, uh, verse 17 through 20. I don't know if you'll get 17. I might, you know, whatever. You'll get it from me. But it says this. It says, thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, comfort, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. And this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, whither the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek is that the place of mercy and refuge for you and I, where we find refuge for the manslaughter, for the guilt of our sin, and where we find salvation, and where we meet the mercy of God, 
is in the person of Christ, to whom we flee for refuge, which is an anchor of hope, sure and steadfast, that's immutable, and that doesn't change. But you say, well, wait a minute. They had to, they had to uproot their existence, and they had to go and live in one of these cities. They had to leave their old life, if you would, and then they had to go now and live forever in one of these cities of refuge. Where, what, what, yeah, yeah, you understand, don't you? It's just like what we're called to do as we come to Christ. That, that in order for us to find refuge in him, it isn't just that we say, okay, well, I'm calling the mercy rule here, and Lord, thank you for what you did. I'm going to stay here in my old life. I'm going to do the old things. I'm going to run with the old crowd. I'm going to live the old lifestyle. The Lord says, no. It doesn't work that way. You flee to the city of refuge. Your life is no longer yours, but your life is uprooted from what it once was, and it is now planted in the person of Christ. That's why we call ourselves Christians, because we die to the old world. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said, for you are dead, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we also appear with him in glory. And so just as they had to leave their city and be planted forever to live in the city of refuge, we also live. Our life is hidden. It's found in Christ. We no longer live in the old world wherein we were guilty. But all of our existence is transferred to the new and to the place where the old uh, is regenerated and we become new. We come to him. And part of that, follow this, reveals our non-intent. We say, Lord, I didn't want to crucify you. I didn't want to be at odds with you. I didn't want to be your enemy. I want to serve you. I want to know you. And so God says, then come to me. Well, I don't want to come to you. Well, then maybe it was murder one. You know, maybe you want Christ on the cross, dead, crucified. You know, you're not, you're not willing. But when we come, it reveals, yes, Lord, I recognize that there's life in you. So what do we find? Say, okay, I'm going to come. I want to come to Christ. I want to flee for refuge to him. I want to find life, eternal life in his name. What do I get when I come to Christ? What should I expect in this new city living in Christ? Well, notice with me in our text, look at the cities that, that were uh, given to be cities of refuge. It's actually verse 7. It says, so they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness of the plain, from the tribe of Reuben in the south, Ramoth Gilead from the tribe of Gad, central, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh in the north. And these were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. What cities were appointed as cities of refuge? It's interesting to me to notice the cities that were chosen and selected. Again, all scripture speaks of who? They are they which testify of me. What are these cities? The first city that's mentioned there in verse 7 is the city Kadesh. The word Kadesh in the Hebrew, the city, it means sanctuary. A sanctuary is a place of rest. It's a place of refuge. It's the very thing that you're seeking as you come to the person of refuge. The place of refuge, Jesus is our refuge. He is our sanctuary. He said it himself like this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Uh, Jesus said, come to me. Oh, dear, I didn't put a little tab in there. So you caught me off guard a thousand ways tonight. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And now we know these verses, but I don't want to misquote them to you. He says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. He's our sanctuary. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What do we find when we come to Christ? We find rest. We find that we're no longer toiling under the burden of our sin. 
We no longer have the responsibility of trying to carry our lives ourselves. But we find in him a rest, the rest of God that's called throughout the scripture. It's interesting that Canaan, the promised land, was called the land of rest because God brought them into their rest, but it was just a type of fulfillment, a shadow of something that would come through Christ later on, that he is our rest. He's the rest that we enter into. He's our sanctuary. And so you come to Christ, you find rest for your soul. The second city that's listed there is Shechem. And I love this because Shechem means the back or the shoulder. That's what Shechem means. And that's exactly what Jesus says in those same exact verses there in Matthew chapter 11. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle. And he talks about those that are heavy laden. And here's what you get when you come to Jesus, to the refuge. You get someone who shoulders the burden with you. That no longer do you have to carry it yourself. But Jesus comes alongside and he carries the weight of that yoke. And no longer are you a single ox trying to navigate through life. But he takes the lead. And you become his yoke fellow. You become partners with him. And you have a companion for the rest of your life. He shoulders the load. My yoke is easy. I love the yoke of Jesus. Here's why. Because the yoke that Jesus gives to us is a perfect yoke for who we are. See, if you were to purchase a bull in those days and you wanted to plow a field or cultivate, you know, to to plant crops and whatnot, then you would have to put a yoke upon that bull and attach it to a plow or to something that could turn the soil. But the yoke that would go on that bull would have to fit that bull. It would be tailored to that bull perfectly Otherwise, the bull wouldn't be able to carry the load. And so that bull would need to be custom measured and a custom yoke would have to be crafted for him to be able to effectively work for you and serve you. Now, all of us carry an unfitting yoke before we come to Christ. It's too heavy for us. We find that we don't have the power, the ability, the enabling to carry the things that we have to carry through life. But when we get the Lord's yoke, he says, take my yoke upon you. He made you. And he's able to put the perfect yoke that fits who you are, what your gifts are, what your talents and desires are, and what he made you to be, and he puts that yoke upon you. And you know what happens when you put the right yoke on the right ox? Is that that ox is able to carry an incredible load, and yet it feels effortless. And that's what we find when we come to Christ, is that not only does he shoulder the load with us, but he puts something upon us that fits so comfortably, we don't even know it's there, And life doesn't feel like work. Kadesh, Shechem. Number three is Hebron. Hebron means associated. He doesn't just call us. We don't just come to him. He takes our social security number, our credit card number, writes our name in the church attendance log, and then lets us go on our way. But the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it says this. It says, for he, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified. Now, you see the verse on the screen there. You see that word sanctified? It's the same word that in the Hebrew would be translated kadesh, or the sanctuary. It means to be set apart. In other words, those who, you know, he is giving rest to, and those that are being rested, kadesh, set apart for him. That they are all of one, and he says, for which reason he, that is Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. And here's, here's what else you find when you come to Christ. You find that he's not ashamed of you. That he is not ashamed to be associated with you. Ironically, many people are ashamed of being associated with Christ. They say, where were you last night? You go, oh, I was out doing some things. You know, I had run a few errands, had to go to the bank, got got a sandwich, and, you know, saw some friends and had a, no, you, well, well, I tried to call you at 8 o'clock. Where were you last night at 8 o'clock? Oh, 8 o'clock. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, I was, I stopped by Bible study, you know, just uh, check out church, you know, a little bit. And, And sometimes we can do that, you know. Sometimes we can be ashamed of our association with him, but the Bible says that he's never ashamed of us. When we come to him for refuge, he never looks at us and says, well, I don't know about you and your shady past and the things that you are and the way that you look and your attitudes and your habits and the things that I'm still working on in your life. We'll work on you a little bit while, then I'll show you to the world. 
never does that. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers. We come to him and we find a friend, an ever-present help in trouble. The Bible says a friend that sticks closer than a brother. The fourth city is the city of Bezer. The word Bezer means a fortress of hidden gold. Love that. Pregnant with application and truth because that's what Jesus is. We come to Jesus and we don't just find a savior. We don't find a mangled and scarred, crucified man whom we follow and idolize by wearing a cross around our neck or a t-shirt that declares his name, but rather we find in him such a treasure, a wellspring of life, living water, hidden gold. Next, number five, it says Ramath in Gilead. Ramath means heights. Gilead means stable places. It's heights in stable places. Heights. It's amazing that the world chases constantly the next high. Where am I going to get the next high? Where am I going to get my next fix, my next excitement, the next vacation, the next investment, the next payday? Where is the next high going to come from? But the problem with the world's highs is that the world's highs are unstable. They're fleeting. They last but for a moment, and then they're gone, and then there's nothing left when it's over. But empty lives, empty life. But with Jesus, the heights that he gives... The rejoicing that comes from him, it's a lasting joy. It's heights in stable places. He puts our lives in a place where what we have isn't fleeting, where the joy that he gives, the blessing that he places on us, it doesn't leave us. The moment after we depart or it wears off, it's heights, but it's in stable places. And then number six is Golan in Bashan. Golan means rejoicing and Bashan means fruitful places. That's rejoicing in fruitful places. And that is that what he's going to do with your life when you come and you give your life to him is that he's going to cause your life to have lasting and fulfilling impact. That in your world, you're going to make a difference. You're not going to be uh, beating the air or trying to make an impact on your own, but you're going to be fruitful in lasting ways. Jesus said that in this is my Father's glorified, that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that's his will for our lives. The human soul is, is unlimited in its capacity to experience. It's unlimited. It's infinite. Your soul can experience an infinite amount of whatever it can experience. That is why nobody's ever satisfied with what they have. They always want more. If someone gets high, they need a little bit more to get high next time because the soul is ever expanding. If somebody has possessions, they need more possessions because their soul is ever expanding. If a person has one relationship... They think that they'll be satisfied, but once they find themselves in that relationship, they find themselves still looking for others. Why? Because the soul can expand. Its elasticity is infinite. It can stretch unlimited. See, the only way the human soul can ever be satisfied is if it can find something that can infinitely give. And there's only one thing that can infinitely give that can meet an infinite need, and that is the infinite God. He's it. There is nothing that will ever satisfy a human life besides the living God. Because he's able to fulfill to an everlasting capacity. As much of him as we're experiencing right now, there's an infinite amount more that we can have. The depth that you've grown and that your roots have sunk into the soil of who he is and what they're drawing from right now is only a small shadow, a microscopic fraction of all that there is to experience and enjoy in him. He's the only place that it can be found. If money could satisfy, rich people would be happy. They're not. If drugs could satisfy, then addicts wouldn't be called junkies. They'd be called joyies. Because they'd be the happiest people on the planet. They would always be high. They would always be up, but they don't. Because the soul, no matter how much you... You know, I I always have this picture in my mind. It's amazing what the Lord can sanctify. Would you ever see Back to the Future... You know, all those years ago with uh, Michael J. Fox. And, and, and they take this time machine, the DeLorean, back into the past. And, 
you know, and they, they don't have plutonium in 1955, you know. So, so there's this picture in the movie where Doc Brown, the crazy scientist, is just throwing anything he can into the flex capacitor. Remember that? You know, the flex capacitor, 1.21 gigawatts. You know, I was young at a different time than you. <laughs> But he's just throwing anything he can into this thing to try to get the energy that it takes to blast this time machine back into 1985. And I always have that picture in my mind because that flex capacitor represents the soul of so many people. They just throw anything that they can inside this thing with some hope of stirring up the energy or the power or the drive to be able to do something that will get them into the future. And it just can't be done because there's only one thing that the human soul was made for. And that was to experience a relationship with the true and living God. And until a man or a woman comes into that place of experiencing him, where they draw their life and their satisfaction from him, they will never find, never find the thing that they're looking for. You can fill yourself with as many relationships as you want with as many substances as you want. You can make as much money as you want. You can do as many things. You can go to as many parties as you want. You can have as many sexual encounters as you want. You can just just live like you are going to be empty. And the more that you experience, the emptier you will be. Because as your soul expands, what it takes to satisfy it also becomes greater. And you will never find life in anything other than in Jesus Christ, because there is no life in anything else other than Jesus Christ. I can't speak for anyone else tonight, but I can speak for myself. And I know that when I came to Christ 14 years ago, that when I came to him, I had truckloads of unintended consequences. Mental problems, money problems, family problems, issues beyond what you could understand addictions you can understand because you were there or maybe you are there and i brought all of those things and i came to jesus for refuge because i needed a savior i needed one that could forgive my sins that could set my life in the right path and that could stop the spiral of destruction and the house of falling cards that was my kingdom crashing underneath my feet and what i found when i came to jesus is that he is every single one of these things that is spoken of through the names of these cities, that not one of those things fails at all, of all that he promises to be. And he is infinitely more. That he is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we could ask or think uh, through his uh, name. You know, and he, he is absolutely all that he promises to be. And I wonder, you know, what perhaps you might be here tonight and that you're running from. What slayer is chasing you? What unintended consequence do you find rising up, producing rubble that you find that you're going to be buried in? I can promise you this, that you can't save yourself, but there's refuge in Jesus. That he's always less than one word away. And that he's willing to save all who come to him. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Lord, there's so many things in the Bible that you say twice, hoping that the second time we'll get it. Well, this you say four times. So impressed would you have us to be, Lord, with the fact of these places that point to the place where we can find ourselves alive Lord, we're unable to foresee what's going to happen through the things that we do. But we know, Lord, that you can see the future. And that you promise to sustain and uphold us as we continually surrender and give our lives to you. And so we pray tonight, Lord, that you would be our Lord. Father, for those of us here that have perhaps backslidden in their heart in some way that they've sought other things to fill the void within their soul. I pray that tonight, Lord, they return to the city of refuge. To the one who satisfies. To the one who gives life. I pray for those here tonight, Lord, perhaps that never called upon you, that still live in the place of ruins, that are still fleeing from the pursuer. But Lord, that tonight they would find refuge in you.
And I pray, Father, that you would revive us. That you would pour out your spirit out us, on us in a real and living way. That you would draw us again to your side. And that we would have life in your name. Before I say amen, perhaps there's someone here tonight and you need to make Jesus Christ your refuge. You've never called upon his name. You hear the voice of his Holy Spirit tonight saying in your heart that you stand condemned under the conviction of manslaughter with the condition of original sin. But the good news for you is that there's a solution, there's a cure. That Jesus Christ came into this world to be the sacrificial atonement for sin. That he took the truckload of your sins upon himself. And he's willing to extend life to you freely. But it's your call. The ball's in your court to make that stand. So is anyone here tonight and you need Jesus? You want to call on his name. And you say, you know what, tonight I hear his voice. Tonight's my night. Just ask you, I'm not going to call you to come forward, but maybe you just would lift your hand and say, would you pray for me? I want to accept Christ. I want to be saved. I want to be born again. I want to come to the city of refuge. I want to find a sanctuary in Jesus. I need to find someone who will be the back or the shoulder that will walk with me. I need the yoke that was fitted for my life. I need to find an associate, a friend in the heavens who sticks closer than a brother. If you need Jesus, lift up your hand. Say, Jesus, come into my life. Father, we thank you again. We know that you're faithful and that you can do all things. And we know, Lord, that the reason you haven't come back yet is because there's still souls, still people, Lord, that are to be saved. And so we pray, Father, that you would pour out your spirit, that you would reveal yourself, that you would bring conviction of sin, and that you would revive. And I pray tonight, Lord, that you would send us forth in the power of of your spirit in the love of God, and that we might be your ambassadors to this lost world. So fill us now, Lord. And we thank you for speaking to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.